Those Space People, a podcast series of casual cosmic conversations with people working on exciting space projects. Today we have Venkat Atmanathan with us. He is currently a research scientist at Purdue University and recently completed his PhD in aerospace engineering. Welcome to the podcast, Venkat. Thank you. I see that you have a bachelor in aeronautical engineering and then a master in mechanical engineering. Yeah. That was really interesting to me the first time I saw your profile because degrees often get progressively specialized. Yeah. But what yeah, what's the story there? When I got my so I actually got an admit into Purdue in the aeronautical department. And the lab that I was working for was the propulsion lab, which was which is 50% funded by the aero department and 50% funded by the ME department. The professor I was working with was actually the graduate chair of the ME department. So he was saying that it'll be easier for him to like actually get me all the administrative tasks done easier if I was in the ME department. So it didn't make any difference whether I graduated from the aero or the ME because the lab was the one that actually mattered. So I volunteered to switch to the ME department and then for my PhD, I decided to go back to the aero department because it was easier personally for me there with respect to qualifying exams and then the the so so the domain specific exams that you take to qualify to do your PhD, those were all like easier for me if I had been in the aero department as opposed to the ME department. So that's why I switched back to the aero department for my PhD. So it was I was admitted into the aero department, but then I had to move out to the ME and then come back to the aero for my PhD. I think it's really nice to have this kind of customizability in your courses and at the university. So that's really nice. Can we talk about your current research? Because you're currently a research scientist. You're leading a team in the aero department and also PhD research. Sure. I'll go, I'll go chronologically. So what I did for my master's then to my PhD. So for my master's program, I actually worked on a gas turbine combustor. And it was um, sponsored by an engine OEM. They wanted to study auto-ignition of diesel uh, fuel and like gas turbine engine environments. So I was funded by the engine OEM to actually get them critical data points where at like high pressure and high flow rates, which are very close to what you would get at the exhaust of a compressor, those conditions where when you're actually trying to study auto ignition phenomena, the reason you do that is because the exhaust of the compressor is actually at very high pressures and temperatures. So to give some numbers, it's like close to 30, 35 atmospheres, and then the temperatures are on the order of 500 Celsius. So in that high temperature and heated environment, when you throw some fuel in, you can spontaneously combust the fuel instead of actually burning it in the combustor, which is what it's designed to burn. So that's so trying to understand what those limits are was my master's research. And when I got into Purdue, I didn't have any funding. So thankfully, the timing all worked out for me to actually get the sponsored project. So at the end of the first semester, I actually started off uh, working on this uh, project. It lasted for about two years. We collected some good uh, information for the engine OEMs. They were able to design their combustors and their compressors appropriately. At least that's what I'd like to believe because we don't know what they use the results for. And Lucky enough for me, when I started with my master's program, I was actually under the tutelage of the managing director of the lab. His name is Scott Meyer. Scott is an amazing engineer. He taught me everything uh, that I know when it comes to rocket plumbing and, and getting engineering systems up and going for rocket and gas turbine combustion applications. So I was directly under his tutelage. He was the lead of the lab. He was in charge of the entire lab safety as well as training new students on how do you put like propulsion systems together so that way i was very lucky to directly work under him and so that's what kind of gave me a little bit of independent uh, skill to you know come up with any combustion or like propulsion systems that i desired to build that happened for about two years and then i was the project had come to an end and there was no more funding left over in that particular field. I was also looking around for a new professor because I, I wanted to go back to the aero department as much as I can. And then I met my uh, PhD advisor, Professor Barry Meyer, with whom I am a research scientist now. So he was he a laser diagnostician, but he likes to use lasers in like combustion environments at high pressure. And he was a new professor. He had a lot of like startup funds for him to use in the university to build it, the timing so happened that he wanted me uh, to join the group because I had like high pressure combustion experience. And so he said, why didn't you join the group? And, uh, and I took up that offer because it was an experience to build a brand new lab. 
So that's what my entire first first year and a half in, in, in Zucra was in my PhD. So the first year and a half, I basically took, took in charge of a lab, which had just four walls and some high pressure plumbing into the lab, but nothing plumbed into any experiments. The whole lab was empty. And so, yeah, we basically started spending all the startup money to build all this like high pressure fluid systems. And like we had all this amazing equipment. And then we started putting together different combustion experiments on which we do our high-speed laser diagnostics. So that's that's what happened until my PhD. And then somewhere halfway through my PhD, we decided to work on this high-speed propulsion topic called rotating detonation engines, which 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 has like detonation waves traveling at on the order of about a kilometer, 1.5 kilometers per second. That's a very high speed flow. So we wanted to like improve our laser diagnostics to those speeds and understand how those combustion processes worked because regular flames um, generally are on the order of few tens of a few hundred meters per second. This is like going at two, three orders of magnitude faster. So you want to understand those dynamics. So we took our old laser diagnostic techniques, try to improve it to understand the combustion processes in these high speed flows, which is what everybody wants to do these days because you have supersonic and hypersonic flows, which is of interest in, in the order of the day. So that's what my PhD was. I, I helped develop laser diagnostics for those flows but in the process, I also got to build all the propulsion systems that is associated to run this system and also design the system itself with a bunch of my colleagues. And so I I finished my PhD and then my boss was like, I would like to have somebody as a staff on staff to like help with the safety and the day-to-day operations of the lab. And so that's when I decided to take up my research scientist position. And being in an academic lab, it's, it's also easier to get access into some of the latest and greatest propulsion technology without having to face a lot of ITAR restrictions which which we i guess we we're going to talk about at some point so yeah wow i always love listening that's to a lot no it's awesome because i love listening to people talk about especially people working on launch vehicles you know, a lot of propulsion uh, because as someone who's never worked on a launch vehicle and just on satellites the coolest part of my workplace for example is uh, the solder lab <laughs> <laughs> so we don't have such amazing stuff so i always love listening to details like this it's so cool yeah, I just wanted to say one thing. So when I started off in the lab, I did not know what a wrench was. Okay. So in about a year and a half, it really—I I didn't know how to solder. Uh, I didn't know. I didn't know what a wrench was. I didn't know anything about like different sizes uh-huh. of wrenches. Or, I'm just saying wrench, but that's yeah. just one thing. I'm just, I'm, but that is so basic that like people were around here. I was like, what's a wrench? I didn't know anything. So it was a steep learning curve, but I had great like help from the creme de la creme of i think t- teachers with with scott so he taught like he would go down to that level to teach something so basic and would take the risk of hiring a student who has no idea what he's doing and and still keep going on with progress so that's just wanted to say that because if people sometimes feel intimidated so it's easy uh, okay no it's <laughs> Not at all. It's. Uh, it, I'm glad you said that because uh, now I have more confidence that I can also, you know, pivot and get into rocket propulsion because I do know what a wrench is, thanks to biking a lot around Berlin. So I want to talk, ask you a little bit about the funds, the funding. But before that, you mentioned your professor was a laser diagnostician. Diagnostician. Mm-hmm. Diagnostician. Sorry, <laughs> a laser diagnostician. So what exactly is laser diagno- diagnostics? Sure. So back in the day when we went to the moon and like I'm talking about like 1960s, 50s, when Russia would build all the moon rocket and everything, almost all the um, systems were analyzed in a very theoretical fashion. And so most and then most of the data they collected was basically thermocouples and pressure transducers along the wall. So they would only look at what is happening at the wall profile and try to like design systems with whatever information they can get on the wall. But in reality, the combustion process is a lot more global and involved in terms of impacting the wall profile. So just because you read something on the wall doesn't mean it's actually very close to what's happening inside the combustor. So in order to understand those processes, from the 1960s to like the 80s and 90s onwards, there was a parallel group that was actually like developing lasers and trying to use lasers to understand how the combustion process works. So the way... The way they were doing that is through this process called light matter interaction. So they would use a coherent light source like a laser, and they will try to image how the flame looks and try to get some information on the chemistry of the flame 
and then try to analyze that over time to collect statistical data to say this is how the flame is operating. So laser diagnostics is, I guess, for combustion especially, is about, uh, I want to say, conservatively about 50 years old. But the combustion analysis and all those tools were extended even beyond that, like maybe uh, another 70, sorry, maybe 80 or 90 years old. So laser diagnostics helps provide more information than what you used to get back in the day. So that's why it's pretty important. And then, then so we're laser diagnosticians and we want to apply these laser diagnostic techniques into high-speed flows to analyze and understand the techniques. The, the benefit of doing this is you can provide validation for model, like data for validation uh, of your numerical model as well as your theoretical models. So this is experimental evidence. Okay, okay. Wow. Super, super, super interesting. Can we talk about how projects in general are funded at Purdue or at similar labs in, in the US or even around? And what kind of timelines do they have? Because a fund probably has a timeline and yeah, the different sources of funding. If you start off at a university in the United States as a professor, uh, assistant professor is what you usually start off as, the university will provide the professor a startup money, startup capital. I don't know if I can tell the exact number, but it's to the tune of somewhere between $500,000 to about a million dollars. And that is provided to the professor when he starts in a department, a tenure track professor. That means that he's approached, he's trying to get a tenure in the university. So the university takes its own money and its own resources and gives it to the professor when he or she starts at the university. Then the professor uses that funds to start uh, buying a bunch of, as well as funding the student in their in their lab to basically put this equipment together and start making some preliminary measurements or some preliminary data collection. So this is coming from an experimental standpoint. I guess for theoretical professors, they will buy things like computational tools and, and computers and other like resources or, and, or even human capital for getting a good senior member into the group so that they can start producing some theoretical results. Uh, so for experimentalists, it's much easier because they buy equipment. So they do that. And then with that startup capital, they can also fund graduate students and postdocs and other kind of human capital as well. So they fund that and they try to get a bunch of data out, a bunch of papers out. And usually the professors takes about a year or two or maybe even three sometimes to get gather some amount of good data that they can present to other funding resources. Now, the other funding resources can be two, can be divided into two. One's the government, the other one's the private industry, right? So the government can can support a more fundamental research, which might not give you a result that can earn profit or not, just to see how science works. That kind of research is funded by the government primarily. Then the private industry, on the other hand, funds for you to get results specific to their problem. So they have a problem and they can get some results specific to their problem. So they, they also fund to the to like similar dollar amount, if you will. And so that's how basically the professor starts to get funding. And as they as he or she starts to get funding, they can start um, writing uh, papers and then eventually gather enough citations to a point where about five to six years from the point they started, they are up for tenure. And then the tenure situation happens where like all the professors in the department actually look at your profile, look at all the work you've created, and then decide whether or not um, they should have you as a permanent faculty member in their school. Once you get tenure, which is the best part, I think, in a professor's life, once you get tenure, it's cruise control. They can't kick you out of the department that easy, but you also are, the job is secured. And then because you're a tenure professor's professor, people will approach you for solving their problems because they think you have a certain level of expertise which managed you to make the department accept for who you are and that's it that's that's where the the professor enters from his early career phase to mid-career phase about five to ten years there are times when the professor doesn't get tenure or the department kind of preemptively tells them that you are probably not going to get tenure then the professor's best thing to do is actually leave the university and go to a different university and start off on a different tenure track position or leave the university and go to the private industry and do their research in the private industry space, private or even government research labs. So that's kind of how the academic side of the world works. So I guess that's more than you asked for, but yeah. 
That's very comprehensive. I really appreciate that. And speaking of human capital, who all are often involved in uh, university projects, you know, I'm assuming students and full-time researchers or... There's basically administrative staff, you have research staff, and uh, you have management staff. So the administrative staff helps you like move paperwork, submit proposals to the website, receive results from the proposal like um, website, does all of that administrative work for you. That's that's a no-brainer and that's usually funded by the department. The management staff as well as the management or professionals called an MP level and that's what I am or, or research staff. So the management staff or the management or research staff are the ones that actually help with the day-to-day operations as well as the safety of like equipment and, and, and the students themselves. Safety is actually, sorry, this is again going on a different tangent, but we usually tell the students that they are responsible for their experiments, but then it is still our overall goal to make sure that we minimize those risks for all the students and, and keep keep the lab functioning good safe. So that's those kind of staff are actually funded by a professor or a couple of professors. So if I'm helping two or three professors, all three of them will pitch in a certain amount of money, depending on the amount of hours I put for their group. And the same goes for the managing director of Zucker Labs, for example. He is actually funded a good chunk by the ME department, a good chunk by the ARA department, because they want to have a human capital that is actually in charge of the whole uh, entirety of Zucker Labs. But also there are other projects that we try to involve Scott in, for example, where he gives his professional input on the on the on the design and and in the operations of an experiment. When we do that, we we pay him by the hour, depending on whatever his hourly rate is. He's a salaried person, but still funds go from a project to meet his salary requirements. And that's the same that goes for even professors actually teach, but then in the summer professors don't get a salary. So all these projects will basically. Uh, be paying all the projects that the professor has is what is going to pay him or her during the summer months. So that's how it works. So that's how I guess funding is spread around. You've given a really comprehensive perspective on how this whole aerospace research kind of works, the whole scene. So that's uh, interesting. Let's talk about ITAR regulations, right? The, the famed ITAR regulations, which essentially make it difficult. I wouldn't say impossible, but make it difficult for non-Americans foreign citizens to work in the space sector, even the private companies. But are there ways to get around this, like getting some sort of a special waiver or a special visa? And how good does one have to be to get this sort of special treatment? Yeah, so there are ways to get around the um, ITAR system. So one of the first things, especially in an academic lab, that you can do is request your funding agency to see if you can have an exception for a certain professional or a student to work on a project because they are the ones that you have and <clears throat> they're probably good at what they do. And so you want them around. And so depending on the United States' relationship with that particular nation, as well as the way the, the, the particular funding organization feels about the individual's country and their origin, as well as the individual's accomplishment. So they'll actually look through your resume and the profile and see if they're worth actually putting the paperwork to get him or her excluded from the ITAR requirements. That you can do. And so if you do that, then this, the person can actually work on that project. So that's something that I think uh, my professor is trying to work towards getting uh, me um, an approval for some of the projects because the students need my help to a certain part of the uh, propulsion system, for example. So they'll actually uh, send an email out to the funding agency to see if they can make an exception to the rule. Now, the person that you contact at the funding agency might not have a say yes or no, but it'll actually go through their international trade uh, an arms regulation office so they'll it'll go through that and then eventually they'll make the decision call as to yes or no there have been times where they've said yes there have been times where they've completely outright rejected no so basically just be the best in the world you know be the be in the top five in the entire world that's kind of chance that's like trying to get your visa now that's one part the other way in which if you, this is in an academic situation even in academia, as well as if you want to go for work for a rocket company, the second method is uh, to get an export control license. So it's one of the licenses that's pretty common. It's called a DSP-5 license. I think it's issued by the Bureau of Industry Standards or Industry Commerce. I'm not sure. But in any event, this DSP-5 license grants a person an ability to work on a certain project that is classified as ITAR. And once they get the DSP-5 license, it's, it's, it costs the company a certain amount of dollar, I think 5,000 bucks or something like that. They are able to work on a certain aspect of a certain system. 
So I'm just going to probably focus on propulsion. So let's say you're working on a turbo pump assembly. And let's say it's ITAR restricted, which usually turbo pumps are. So if you get a DSP-5 license to work on a turbo pump assembly, they will have a certain set of documents that they are able to release. You'll work on that and you'll try to accomplish your goals for the company that you're working with. Now, let's say in case you have to interact with the combustor guy because your turbo pump is going to be mating with the combustor. There are chances that the combustor person has a lot of stuff that is actually ITAR restricted. And so if that is ITAR restricted, you want to access that because you need to optimize your engine. You now have to apply again for a DSP-5 license to actually access that component and those details because that's actually important to you now. So this is a pain for the organization, which is why SpaceX Blue, none of these companies want to hire foreign nationals unless they are actually really up above in the, in like the pecking order. So that's one of the reasons why DSP-5 licenses are a huge pain. But there is a way. So just, just putting it out there. You would like to be, right? But they can always find human capital that is actually like fulfilling your roles and is still a citizen. It's, it's much easier to do that. Now that you mentioned that they can always find another person, a citizen who can fulfill the functions. So do you think that there is enough human capital in the US? I don't know, for the next 10, 15 years. So essentially my question is, do you see the US government remove, removing this entry barrier or lowering this entry barrier, I don't know, in the next 20 years? I think one of the clubhouse meeting, actually, uh, one of the person called Mike Mewing, he's a VC uh, at a, the Starbridge, yeah, uh, VC funds. Uh, so he was, I think, saying that, like, the recent time that they relaxed was probably in, like, 2017. And at that point, I think the DSP-5 license is probably the latest in the years where they could get access to a lot more stuff than what they used to get. But it's because of the fact that the technology is dual use, it's dual use, meaning it could be for civilian as well as military application. He was saying that he doesn't foresee a lot of the rules changing. And being in this industry for about seven years, at least in an academic lab and interacting with a lot of people, it doesn't seem like it's going to go anywhere. And then to answer your question, whether they have enough capital or not, that I don't know if I have enough experience to answer that because I'm still freshly minted <laughs> graduate student. So it's a question that I don't want to, I guess, try and answer even because I don't know all the numbers. I guess time will answer that question. So what happens to all the foreign students that pursue advanced aerospace degrees in the US? Do you see them continuing in the academy like you are? Or do they go back to their home countries or, I don't know, move out of the space sector altogether? So I've seen all three happen. But predominantly, I've seen a lot of people actually branch out into fields that they are interested in but they would be even more interested in is an opportunity available but then that's ITAR restricted for them a lot of the folks that i know that are foreign nationals like from spain uh, belgium etc they all go work for a private company and uh, they're probably working on a project like for example gas turbine engines they are actually uh, a technology that's not as restricted as rocket engines so the engine OEMs like GE, Rolls-Royce, Pratt & Whitney, any one of these guys, they start to try and make exceptions to the rule to make sure that they can hire foreign nationals to work on these like subsystems like turbines, compressors, combustors. But a person that is interested in rocket combustors does not want to deal with air-breathing combustors because their mindset is completely different because the engineering behind a rocket combustor is different from that of a gas turbine combustor. But even if they worked on a rocket combustor in their master's or their PhD, they might have to go and work on an air-breathing combustor, which I'm not saying is not interesting. I'm just saying that it might not be the interest of the person that's actually working on. But so, yes, people go into sectors that are more admitting of them and their skills than just the rocket industry. That's This is just very close to aerospace industry because gas turbine engines are close to the aerospace industry. I've seen people go work for fire protection industry. I've seen people go work for environmental companies where they're trying to like study forest fires. Since you have a combustion background, I'm, I'm just talking from a combustion perspective. Since you have a combustion background, you can basically take that and apply your skill set into a different problem-solving approach. I've seen people that did spray work, aerospace combustor spray work, take their skill set and actually go to HP and develop inkjet printers. Oh, wow. <laughs> I've seen people that take the same 
spray work and actually go and work on cloud seeding, which is like geoengineering, which has nothing to do with combustors or aerospace. Now, the question is, I can't answer, I can't speak for the other people whether they're having fun or not, but I'm just, I just think that it would be a lot more fun if they were able to work in a rocket or a gas turbine combustor system as opposed to outside. So that's just me coming from a niche perspective. That's one thing. Then academia, yes, people do go to academia, but foreign nationals generally try to get a few years worth of postdoc experience because the reason why you do a postdoc or a research staff position is so you build the contacts that you need so that when you write a proposal, there is somebody in the funding agency that knows that you are doing good work and is willing to spend the money on you. Because if you don't bring in money, you're not going to get your tenureship, which means you're going to lose your position in a university. So that's that's why a lot of students typically try to do a, kind of a postdoc or a research staff position a few years before they, they wrap it up. That's that's taking the whole space spin-offs to a completely new level. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's so cool. Of course, yeah, it would have been amazing if they were able to contribute, especially after benefiting from all these really prestigious universities. But Yeah, I think I remember your third question. Will they go back to their country? Now, that, I think, is a small fraction than it used to be. But the fraction is actually growing over and over over a year i think because because of globalization every facility that you can get here in the us you're able to get back in india it's just you probably are going to pay a dollar or two more but then you should still be able to experience all the things you can that you get in the us so i do see a good chunk of people actually trying to move back to india and just in my close circle at least two three people have moved back and then two three people have in, intended to go back to their own country because it's much easier for them. I think there's also a fourth option that people can go to a second country or I don't know, third country. I also know somebody who did a did a master's, not a PhD from the US. Is and it and is now he is an Indian person and he's now working with the German Aerospace Center, DLR, and working on really advanced projects. So I'm sure there's a lot of people like that as well. America's loss is Europe's gain. America's loss is everybody's gain because almost around the world there seems to be a lot more openness to working on this industry. Just from Zucro Labs, we lost three foreign nationals that we know are extremely good in combustion to a company in Germany, a space start startup company in Germany. Wow. Without revealing names, a South African, a guy from, I think, Singapore, German himself, and uh, an Indian. All three are like combustion experts and like rocket propulsion experts. All of these countries came to the US, spent about a decade working here on like really advanced propulsion concepts with liquid oxygen, gaseous oxygen, rockets, and they were doing combustion instability work, all of that stuff. Wow. That entire human capital went to work for ESA Aerospace. So there's like a, we make fun of it saying Purdue Germany. So <laughs> Zucro Germany or Purdue Germany. It's, it happens. Yeah, I also tell people that it's incredibly easier to find opportunities in Europe or Germany. Because here, for example, recently I was also switching jobs and I was applying to a couple of places across Europe and every single company was asking me their first question was was can you start yesterday so everybody so there's a huge dearth of human capital across Europe they're always super happy to accept anybody essentially even they need not have space background you can also come from allied allied sectors so yeah a lot of opportunities here and in the same way, and these people who went back and they immediately got a job, like a job in ESAR Aerospace and are working in like propulsion systems. The time it took for them to do that was like nine months. But if I want to work on a rocket company, something in, in the US, apart from the six years that I spent, I'll have to spend another four or five, three or two or three years at least as an Indian to try to get a green card before I can start working in that industry. And then if I just have a master's, I'll probably end up spending even longer because I'm going to get like an EB2. So it's just the time it takes between you graduating and then you getting a job in the industry that you are interested in is just phenomenally different between what it is in the US versus what it is outside. Yeah, it's amazing how how everybody else benefits from folks who are trained and, and groomed by the United States to work on things that are very specialized. They're, they're losing capital. The worst part is that even if you were if you're studying in, for example, Canada, right? The let's say you're doing your master's and then you're doing your PhD and let's say you take about five to six years. Each every year you're in the you're in Canada actually counts as if you are a part of Canada. 
And so at the end of your PhD, or even before the end of your PhD, you can actually get your green card equivalent, a permanent residency for Canadian PR. Here, all the time you've spent in your F1 visa is not counted at all. The only time it's counted is when you're on an H1B and you need to be like a certain few years here. So it, it's just, it's insane because somebody spent like about six, seven years of their life in the United States, but you're not considered as if you're a permanent resident. You're just still treated uh, as a foreign national. It's just, it takes a while. They have their own reservations about it being a foreign national, blah, blah, blah. But I think those uh, walls and barriers are probably going to come down especially because your Ukraine, which used to be a part of USSR, is now exporting a lot of rocket technology. So building a rocket or flying a rocket is going to get easier and easier. What's going to get more difficult is the use case as well as the market, if you will. Yeah, it is what it is. Yeah, it, it's also so baffling and surprising to me because in Germany, essentially, so you have something called a special work visa. It's called a blue card visa. It's not a Germany equivalent of a green card. It's still a visa. But if you earn above a specific amount, uh, if your salary is above a threshold, and then you get the special visa, and that basically puts you on a fast track to getting permanent uh, residency, which is green card in the US, right? And then citizenship. So within 21 months of holding this blue card visa, you can get a permanent residency if you have some decent German skills. Otherwise, it's 33 months. Mm -hmm. And then I think you just need to spend five years in the country, uh, sorry, eight years in the country in total. That also includes the time you spent as a student to be eligible for the citizenship. And and I think the new government even wants to bridge this gap. They want to make it, I don't know, two or three years uh, further shorten it. So yeah, I see a lot of people coming to Germany. And now in the last decade, where there's been a bloom of uh, space companies in the US, Germany quite hadn't caught up and, and now it's slowly catching up and there's like ESAR Aerospace, there's a bunch of other companies, not only in Germany, but across Europe. So they're also gearing up and yeah, they need more human capital. Yeah, I like history a lot. And so one of the things that I, one of the things that I read about was how like the German engineers actually split and one went to the US, the other one joined the Russian group. And so both of them are actually developing each other's space programs and like aiding and improving their propulsion technology. But the Russians actually had a much more superior engine technology that the United States didn't have. And when they learned about it after the USSR wall came down, they learned about the fact that the Russians actually had built like a closed cycle lock switch stage combustion, which the United States engineer thought that it's impossible to do because they tried it and then they like literally melted hardware like candle wax because hot, it will burn everything. Your, your engine metal will become fuel. So abandoned it and they didn't do anything like that until they saw that the Russians had already done it and have flown those engines. So that's when they started importing those engines and that's where the RD-180, the NK-33, all those engines come in. So if you think about it, technology-wise, the United States was still behind Russia and one of the documentaries, the engineer says that was a hard pill for a lot of people in the rocket industry to swallow in the United States, that the, the technology in Russia was like miles ahead of the United States. So I don't know, if you say the U.S. is like technologically more advanced. I would still think about it a little bit. Yeah, they were extremely advanced in controls, but yeah, they put the first, the first human in orbit. I would only attribute why Russia couldn't be where uh, is not where the U.S. is right now is because of just the political turmoil. It's absolutely not about the technological prowess. Because even if we read, what's this book about? Yuri Yuri Gagarin. There's this amazing book that outlines like the whole history of Yuri Gagarin. Yuri Gagarin book, not Soviet man, Starman, yes. Starman is the name of the book. I don't know if you've read Starman. I have not, but I will try to get a hold of it. Yeah, it's, it's quite awesome. I, I don't know, maybe as a propulsion engineer, you might enjoy it way more than I have. <laughs> There's another book that's actually impending in my list of books to read. It's it's on Sergei Karaliyev's like biography. Um, oh wow! So, I, what's the name of the book? I think it's just called Sergei. So, the the reason why I said that was because there was a recent um, conference and uh, we were discussing like rocket history with one of the Air Force people, and uh, he said a quote that he read in one of the books, which said basically the the aerospace industry is basically politics, economics, and engineering in that order. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I thought that was a great quote that could be inserted at this particular part. 
if you don't have your politics or if you have both politics and economics right and you don't have your engineering right it's the same problem the fascinating part of it is that it still holds true and it will hold true for the foreseeable future of humanity if everywhere even if you look into science fiction that's essentially the theme if you look at the expanse that's what it's about <laughs> wow so cool that's that's awesome i i should probably get a t-shirt printed and wear it around i wish i could attribute the quote to somebody i don't remember who it was i'm pretty sure we can find it let's let me google that and i couldn't i actually googled it oh really uh let's see anonymous maybe let's just attribute it to anonymous So you also mentioned that a lot of people are especially a lot of Indians are going back to India. So what are these people doing because now of course there are a bunch of aerospace companies, there are a bunch of rocket companies which are also quite nicely funded, which is an amazing thing. So you see so a lot of your friends or the Indians that you've seen are they working with these companies or are they working in the going into the Indian academia or what's happening there? So I've seen a few people go into like places like Indian Institute of Science, IIT Madras, Indian IIT Bombay, uh, Kanpur, etc. All that the aerospace school is pretty well known. I've also seen a lot of people work for private engineers like Rolls, GE, etc. These are just two names, but they have big factories in Bangalore and they're going there. Then an extremely small fraction, like you could count the numbers out, are going to go work for like private space companies like Agnikul and uh, Skyroot. Again, I think these people are all seeked out by the private industry for their expertise, so that they can actually improve their human capital skill set. So that's why they're like actually sought after probably by these private companies. But if you, if I, if people were going back to India, they would also expect a certain level of pay. which sometimes the private companies might have a difficulty paying so that's probably why the 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 numbers are dwindling as you go into uh, uh, startup based companies as opposed to established private players um i'm not sure if a lot of people have actually joined up like organizations like isro because that I, when i when i spoke to a lot of people they were saying that in isro there is still an exam and there is still like even after you finish your phd there's like a long interview process and he still start off not too high in the ranks i believe so i don't know i think one or two people said it was not worth the amount of effort they had to go through but it is what it is so there's no lateral entry into the structure the organization structure that they have the lack of a lateral entry into the into the hierarchy and also not being able to get into a larger decision making role i think this is the much bigger deterrent than an exam or an interview right if you're an aerospace engineer you can totally ace any exam or any interview i guess phd's can only enter at sd or something level so essentially that's the level where if you start out as an undergrad at isro you reach that level like in 3 or 4 years so that's about it so 3 years or 4 years of your time at isro is equal to a phd which i wouldn't say is quite equivalent right because american phd's or aerospace phd's are quite quite rigorous and quite longer than 4 years so at least in the us in in nasa for example instead of just starting off at sd you could start between sd and s like i don't know ef not sure how many levels are there in in nasa it's i think gs scale the the pay the pay grade scale and then they basically have a band they'd be like you can be between 9 and like 12 or something if you have a masters what people when they join the organization they negotiate with the manager and the manager actually promises in about a year or two once you have a certain level of experience that they can meet to reach the lowest requirement for the next grade scale like the grade band then in a year or two they'll actually promote you to that band rather than going from 9 to 10 to 11 to 12 you can start off at 9 or 10 take a pay cut for a year and a half or two but then immediately jump to gs12 or something so you can do those like jumps and then that's all at the discretion of the manager and the reason why they do that is <laughs> in the us a lot of poaching happens from the private industry i mean sorry off the government employees by the private industry let's say you're a nasa employee and you're sitting at a certain desk today tomorrow you could be hired by a private contractor that will put you at the same desk you would not even move desks you'll just be at the same desk but then you'll not be a nasa employee anymore you'd be a private contractor employee and so you get a lot more uh, money if you're a private contractor employee so people try to people try to like move away from the the government organization as they progress and like they're they're reaching the limit of their career so that's one part and then they're also like a lot of the private companies do try to like poach 
experienced engineers in private in the garment sector so that they can get skills and resources that they don't have to contract and pay NASA through NASA because you're still paying a like a large money through NASA. And in order to prevent all of these, the, the, the upper level management has the ability to like do a lot of lateral entry and provide a lot of positions and promotions, etc., so, so that they can retain their capital. Because if a propulsion center doesn't have good propulsion engineers, they only have five, you can't function. Five people cannot do all the jobs. So in order to keep all the jobs full, it's the role of the managers to actually convince the people that being in a government actually ensures job security and a whole bunch of other advantages, which you don't have in the other private industry. Wow, that's uh, that's quite interesting. Hierarchy-wise, ISRO is still quite quite rigid, has been quite rigid, but I it, it might change because there's a new chairman now who's been appointed very recently and he's a very young person and quite known in the amongst the ISRO crowd to be a visionary and you know very dynamic and uh, open to change so yeah let, let's uh, let's see how that pans out speaking of indian universities right so now space has is getting more and more popular in india a lot of universities also uh, also sometimes appro- approach me on kickstarting an aerospace research lab or or some sort of space activity if they want to build satellites it's quite easy because you can just wire up a bunch of sensors to a i don't know like a raspberry or not and just put it on a balloon and fly it. And there you have a high-altitude platform, essentially a satellite. But can something like this be done with low effort and low money for aerospace research? So the answer to that is yes for the materials, but it's probably a no for the skill set. Because if you, so for a propulsion lab, right, you could set up a lab maybe in about fifty to $60,000, a small propulsion lab that does maybe gaseous oxygen and methane or something like that, like very simple, uh, small-scale engine that's like about two, 3,000 pounds of thrust. So you could try to build it in a short dollar amount. But the problem is not just the materials, right? The problem is a person being able to handle these systems. Most of the time, that expertise is stuck in India in an extremely secure job, either in Godrej Aerospace or in ISO. Because you don't want to leave your job and do something completely arcane because you don't know if that is going to be supported in the days to come. So that's why it's a little bit of a challenge to move these people out of the organization. The other thing is that I've heard that there is a bunch of liability issues that come along if they try to employ Godrej Aerospace or ISR engineers, like not employ as in they try to use their help to actually build a rocket in, in, in a university setting something bad happens, then you, who's going to take the liability for it? Is it the university? Is it the ISRO person? Because the ISRO person could say that I was not there all the time. Or the university could say that, hey, he didn't teach me. So there is a big liability issue also. So I think the best way to solve this is if a university, somebody like IIT Madras or you know ISC Bangalore, which has a lot of capital to hire these high-level engineers, offers them a government job and hires them in just to develop this particular capability, then that makes a lot more sense. And not only develop the capability, but also start providing funds to use the capability by, what I mean by that is when they're developing their engines, they should use this tinier resource, like small scale engine test facility that was developed for that purpose. They should, the ISRO should fund these education institutions to analyze small scale engines at those facilities instead of doing it back in their own uh, Mahindra Giri facility, for example. That's how you like slowly diversify your all your bets and keep the universities producing good quality engineers so you can benefit from it at the, at the, in the days to come. Because at the end of the day, the government's money is the people's money. So you're investing in people and you're investing in capital so that you get a good bunch of engineers who can then go find jobs in the industry. To recap your question, yes, you can build a small-scale rocket facility. You just need the expertise to like build that. First of all, 50, you said 60,000, that's about less than 50 lakhs, essentially, right, in Indian currency. Wow, that's peanuts. And second of all, maybe there could be a startup idea here, right? Somebody like you, for example, can set up, I don't know, like a small consultancy or a company, get together with three or four other people and manage these labs for the universities. Would that work? That's possible. It's just there is no proven market or, or at least I haven't reached out. My long-term plan is to go back to India, but I hadn't reached out necessarily 
to to these universities to see whether there is actually a, a merit to building these labs and they actually funding this on a continuing basis because at the end of the day you need money right if you employ four people who have all this expertise you're not able to pay them then nobody's going to stick around so that is probably a startup idea to do that but then somebody needs a proven track record as well as somebody needs to foot the bill does the expert need to stay be at the university be employed by the university full time can't they just show the ropes i don't know for 6 months give some training to the existing professors or lecturers i'm not saying it's not possible i'm just looking at the way my lab functions right so scott meyer has been in the lab for about 20 years 20 plus years and even today a lot of us feel that if he leaves the lab to go to the private industry there's it's a huge loss for the lab because he still brings a certain insane level of expertise into the university setting which would be lost if he decides to go work for the private industry or if he decides to do this at a part time consulting because you cannot do justice to that that job so in a way i think it is imperative that the universities invest in this human capital rather than use them only on an on off contract basis so scott meyer who was the managing director of the lab was actually before he became the managing director of zucro when he graduated from purdue he actually got his masters from purdue in 1993 i believe he actually went to work for a wind tunnel facility aedc and then he went on to work on a private space company called beel aerospace that is the company that was the united states on the first all up launch vehicle startup company so very very similar to the spacex model where they were doing pressure fed peroxide rp engine and uh, scott was one of the lead people that actually you know designed built um, the engines and beel aerospace was lived for about 3 years they built their mcgregor engine test facility down in dallas in texas 3 years later andy beel the the owner of the company of beel aerospace tried getting like funding from nasa and nasa was very you know against private companies doing the entire launch vehicle and so andy beel actually wrote a letter it was like a, it's it, it's still there you can find it online andy beel writes a letter saying that we will not be able to have a private space industry until nasa changes its mindset he folds his company in 2001 then so scott comes with all that expertise moves into zucro and then starts building a rocket facility and actually takes it up like really to the next level to a point where i think purdue without blowing our own uh, trumpet to say that it's it's one of the it's one of the propulsion labs that like has facilities that is not matched or paralleled by almost any university in the world it's probably very close to dlr but dlr is a private organization it's not a university setting so this particular propulsion lab was actually taken up to that level by a person like scott so scott was invested in by purdue as an engineer and then he went on to become a, a senior engineer then become became an assistant director or something like that and then he finally became the managing director of zuko and he's been in that position for about a decade now the the reason why i said this was cuz that's a great human capital that you want to have and so in if if scott was here on a contract basis i don't think zuko would ever be in the position that it is today yeah i absolutely get that and dlr is a, actually a publicly funded research institute but yeah i absolutely get that I'm just looking up Beal Aerospace. Uh, Andrew Beal is a banker. Wow, that's so cool. Yeah, he's an investment banker. And a lot of people um think, "Oh, wow, Elon built the McGregor facility." That's not true. Scott and his crew, at least as far as I know, and and his crew from Beal Aerospace was the one that built um the entire engine test facility in McGregor. It was funny in the history of things about that time and a year or so NASA's mindset changes and they're like okay we'll just start funding private industry and andy beal basically was i don't know if he was annoyed or what i can't speak for him but you can see that in i think in one of the letters andy actually writes elon's a smart guy and he actually got my he bought my mcgregor facility but elon bought the mcgregor facility for peanuts i mean for for cents of the dollar wow it's basically he got that entire test facility that was built by andy beal I think invested about a billion dollars. I don't want to be wrong about the number. Why doesn't anyone talk about this? That's because there's a lot of SpaceX fanboys too. So <laughs> there's also this another company, right? Bigelow Aerospace. I think that also started around the same time, around 2000. Ah, uh, have you heard about that one? Probably. I, I the name rings a bell. I'm not uh, too sure what they did. Oh yeah, Bigelow. Okay, okay. These are the people that like built the. 
did expandable modules. Okay, I, that's why the name rings a bell. But in any event, yeah, I think Beale Aerospace needs to, it deserves a good bunch of recognition, which is lost in, in the noise that <laughs> private companies create these days. So much noise, in fact. Yeah, yeah. Lots of uh, space tourism and uh, trying to make, I don't know, trying to draw a lot of attention to space. Yeah. I find it a little funny because space is already sexy. It's always been super awesome. Well, that's what Elon did. He made space sexy, which which is which was the biggest, I think, takeaway and credit because you can have a whole podcast on that. Got to give it Elon Musk, right? Because one tweet by Elon Musk can essentially topple the, the whole financial markets across the world. So that's a lot of power and that's... Uh, that's uh, fascinating. One question to, for me that I always have is, you're from India, I'm from India. Both of us are from India. We know a lot of Indians who are working in the space sector. So how important do you think is getting into the IITs and the NITs? Because when I see a lot of Indians who are working in the space sector across the world, a lot of them are not from these elite institutes. They are from a lot of non-elite institutes, right? They're from across the spectrum because we, we clearly have a hierarchy in, in India, at least when it comes to engineering colleges or uh, universities. And they not all of them are from the IITs. A good chunk is from these other institutes. So I want to basically have your perspective. How many people, how many really amazing aerospace engineers or engineers in general you have worked with have not come from these institutes, from this whole IIT and IT ecosystem and what makes someone a good rocket scientist? Yeah. Okay. So I guess let's tackle the first question. So I, it's funny. I've not ever asked anybody who's working at Zucro or any one of these places, which university you went to. Partially it's because I went to an extremely tiny college. At least it was tiny at the time when I studied. It was called Raja Lakshmi Engineering College. Nobody knows about it. They have an extremely tiny aerospace program. And uh, most of the stuff we did was just math and books. And that's why when I joined Zucro, I didn't know what a wrench was. I hadn't even tightened down a bolt in my entire life. So at that point, it's not that bad, but it's having very little hands-on experience. But the opportunity that I got was I had a chance to work with Satya Chakravarti's group, who's now co-founder of Agnikul. I got a chance to work with his PhD students at IIT Madras, helping them with their combustion experiments. It was extremely tiny for me, but I was extremely happy to do it because I was young and I had a lot of time on my hand. So I was happy to help out with their combustion experiments. So you don't have to be a part of an elite institute in order to get access to the institute or get access to the resources available in that institute. I kept cold emailing Satya. I still have those emails. I still carry around this uh, card, which like I kept cold emailing him saying, hey, I'm interested in combustion stability because... Okay, but there is a certain level of privilege involved here because I had access to YouTube and a bunch of things. But I saw the F1 rocket engines, like their combustion stability work, and then I Google searched it. So every single thing that I'm t telling now is a sign of privilege, which I did have. But yeah, I Google searched it and I found that there is a person who's trying to do combustion stability work in Chennai. That was Satya and, 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 and Sujit. There were two people, uh, two professors, Satya and Professor Sujit. And so I kept cold emailing them. And then Satya replied back to me saying, hey, you can come and help out our PhD students if you want to. There was nothing official. It was more like an internship. I was not paid for, but it was just me hanging out with them. So I hang out with them. I helped them with their experiments. I remember putting my first ever all-nighter, helping them out with an experiment, like a turbulent methane flame. But at that time, it was a huge deal for me because I was an undergrad and I didn't have any of this opportunity. In a way, if you are able to deal with the books and work through the equations by spending enough time on it, and you put some effort into getting access into these institutions, because of the fact that they're public institutions, they're set up that way, every single student who's not a part of that institute also has access to that institute. So that's how I, I got a, a little bit of experience there. And that's what helped me get into Purdue University which a lot of students who were at IIT Madras Aerospace Program couldn't get into even. If you think about it, there's some sort of a, a, a mystery here, right? Like a person who's at IIT Madras, you would expect them to like easily get into Purdue, but that's not necessarily true. It's all passion driven and it's all how much time and effort you want to put into the work you're doing. And so 
that answer the question, do you have to be from an elite institute? I, the answer is no. And, and in fact, clearly no. What's the process to follow to get access to the facilities or to work on a project that's happening at the university? You can volunteer. Volunteering help. Because of the fact that you're not paying, you might get a relatively lower quality volunteer in, like output. But at the same time, if the volunteer is performing quite well, then the professors are inclined to either recommend them for master's or PhD or recommend them to start earning some level of cash that you can pay. The only way you can do that is by cold emailing these professors and trying to say, this is what I'm interested in. Do you have something that I can do during these hours of the day or these hours of the week? Or do you have some work that your graduate student is over overloaded, which 95% of the graduate students are? Uh, like can i offload some of the work that they're doing so those two things those two emails should be able to help you get some job that you can contribute to and you might not have a lot of skills but even if you're able to make the person feel that you're offloading some of their work then the he or she is inclined to now help you achieve what you want and or give you more details and resources and projects to work on so that's if, if you have access to an institute close by. If you don't, then that's a whole different ballgame. I'm not uh, necessarily sure how we can help out. But given this day and age, information is out there. It's just somebody who needs to guide you so that you can weed through the noise and get the information you care about. Because just having contacts and like just using good level of judgment, like you, if I'm reading a paper, I, there are like 500 journals available online but I would only read it from like a certain quality journal. You see, set up those thresholds. Somebody can guide you to what those thresholds are. You can do that by interacting with the professors. And so with with that in mind, you should be able to start only reading good quality papers and that can help you get experience in, in, in these fields. And this is possible at uh, all the universities that have a... Yeah, like I said, it, it's you can email the professors and like try to get some level of uh, experience in these systems it's, it's that people should recognize that iats iascs are all publicly funded at the end of the day when your parents are paying the taxes you are the one that's actually funding these universities so in a way even if you don't get into the university because they have a maniacal process to get into them you should still be able to make use of those resources if you're willing to work for free or for like cheap which are both acceptable as long as the professor is okay with it this is so amazing. I'm really surprised how more people are not doing it. I guess nobody really knows about this route. I'll try my best in spreading the word. This is gold information. If there are professors listening here, I'm not responsible for your inbox being full. That's a good disclaimer. Very smart. <laughs> I take no responsibility for this. <laughs> Me too. I also absolve of any responsibility so at your own risk. <laughs> So the second part of my question, what makes someone a good rocket scientist or a propulsion engineer or however you wish to answer? I guess um, mm, that's very prophetic. <laughs> yeah, an, an hour of talking hard engineering. I, I guess we have the liberty now to go into the, you know, the, the, the prophecy zone, not prophecy, prophetic zone. Yeah, I think a good rocket scientist... Um needs to be able to solve problems. It needs to be able to have that I can solve any problem that's thrown in my face. Or should be able to have the knowledge to recognize you can't solve it. So being able to say you can solve it or being able to, from the get-go, say it's probably impossible to solve it. I think that makes you a good scientist because you're, you're, you're investing your time appropriately. I guess it was not a short and sweet uh, answer, but in many words, that's what I think makes you a good scientist. Or a research engineer. This actually reminds me of this nice quote. I don't know, it's part of the serenity prayer. Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. So, same life mantra. I guess many words is what I did. So, that's a succinct way of saying it. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's good. I guess this is what makes a good engineer or a scientist in any field, I, I assume. So thank you, Venkat. It's been super fun uh, discussion. I would love to have another session with you. But you've shared a lot of incredible insights, which we don't really find anywhere. A lot of tips, for example, about 
cold calling all the professors or the way that the way you approach things it's really interesting i'm sure a lot of people from india or from any part of the world would find it very interesting thanks a lot for your time thank you this is fun if student enthusiasts or space professionals want to reach you what's the best way so yeah my email address i think which should be i can spell it out now it's v a t h m a n a at purdue.edu so that's my first initial and then part of my last name and or you can find me on linkedin and i should be i'm pretty responsive on linkedin too so both those resources should be perfectly okay thank you again for your time thank you this was fun <laughs>